following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. As we take just a little break in between kind of the halfway point of Nehemiah, and uh, we were talking downstairs in the adult group, I, I'm, I'm absolutely loving the study of Nehemiah, um, and maybe that comes from uh, kind of experience in, I spent a lot of my years building things, and some of them are even standing still. Um, but Psalm 126, we're going to take a look at it because it, it does have a, a bearing on our understanding of Nehemiah, for sure. Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote these simple words. Home, she said, is the nicest word there is. Home is the nicest word there is. I've told you in the past that I, I used to travel before I became a pastor. I spent about 10 years traveling all over the country doing music ministry and speaking and at conferences and different things. And um, sometimes it was just for a day or two, sometimes a weekend, sometimes a week or uh, up to three weeks once. And it was amazing an amazing experience. Uh, I got to meet so many wonderful people and see God work in so many different ways and different places. I got to minister in every denomination and type of church imaginable. But there was something that was always common about it. It seemed like um, every time I would go out for a few days, and after, after a few days, I might be in a church library just sitting by myself or walking around a campground or whatever, and someone would come up to me and say, you're thinking about home, aren't you? You're thinking about home. And I, I guess I had that faraway look in my eyes or something. And certainly after a sh relatively short period of time, usually when my plane left the ground in Moline, I started thinking about home. I started thinking about Judy and, and the boys at home and already looking forward to getting back. And I, it made me over the years stop and think of the words of Jesus in, or the words of Hebrews 12 too, about Jesus that reminds us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And I know all the theological uh, ramifications of that, but I couldn't ha help but think that there, uh, there's a little part of that that was perhaps Jesus thinking about home. The joy set before him was that of going through the cross and getting back home to his father. I mean, after all, think about it. Think about it. He left the joys and the perfection of heaven to walk among the sinless rabble I mean the sinful rabble and the sinful words and actions of the children he had created, but who had rejected him. I know his work was the work of all works, giving his life for the sins of mankind. But still, I couldn't help but wonder if he didn't just miss home once in a while a little bit. Home. 
home, no doubt, means something different to each of us and something special to each of us. And, you know, like I said earlier, it may not always seem special. It may sometimes seem ordinary, but it's not. And today we're going to look at this group of people who I think in part were coming back home, mostly to a home they had never been before, to a place that they had never been before, but they longed to come to. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, startle us. Awaken us. Jolt us with the power and clarity of your word as we seek to deepen the stakes of our faith in this absolute truth of your word. Father, may my words be silenced in our hearts and minds, and may only your words cut through and remain. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 126, as you can see, is just six short verses. There's not much to it. But I want you to kind of take away four words that I think comprise the major elements of this psalm. And those four four words are simply going to be story, song, prayer, promise. Story, song, prayer, and promise. You can just leave that up there, and we'll kind of follow through and look through these things. Story, song, prayer, and promise. Let's read through the text. Now, I'm reading from the uh, older NIV, so it may be different, but this one says, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who, carries, he who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy carrying sheaves with him. So let's start. Verse 1, we start with the very first element, which is story. And you're asking, now wait a minute, there's one verse here and there's not much story. Well, no, there's not. But sometimes we have to look beyond the verse. There is a story here. It's an incredible story that has brought these people to this point in their experience with God. And I think this is a great reminder. When you come across something in Scripture, and you're reading your Bible, you're doing a study, and you don't necessarily, okay, where's the story here? Dig. Look for it. Get into it. Uh, we started, when, when we started the study on Nehemiah, um, Judy and I started digging a little bit with it, and suddenly we found ourselves having, I mean, just having to, compelled to, uh, study through Ezra and Esther And Jeremiah, and last week when we talked about Joel, because all of these stories melt into this one story. We're all a product of history, right? You just didn't pop up this morning the way you are. You have a history. And I'll tell you what, if no, at no other time in history has history mattered more. 
But, but just real briefly, what are we talking about here when it says, the Lord brought the captives to Zion? There's story in that. The story is simply, and, and we're not going to go all the way back because we'd have to go back to creation and, and Adam and Eve and the fall and all of that. But let's pick it up at a point where God's people had lived under the blessing of God so many times God had delivered them over and over and over again. And the whole point was that God was to be their king. God was supposed to be their king. And yet you all know the story. What happened? First Samuel 8 tells us that the people, Samuel told them this, and the people refused to listen to him. And they said, nope. Bunch of bratty kids, by the way. Nope, we want a king. Well, why do you want a king? Because we want to be like what? Everybody else. Everybody else. else. Now, if you want a recipe for disaster, tell God, no, I don't want to listen. Ask Jonah, where'd he end up? In whale puke. Oh, I'm sorry, maybe you can't say that on tape, but he did. Go through the Bible and look how many times people say no to God and the disaster that befalls them. So God gives them a king. God says, fine, give them a king. The, I've said it over and over and over again, and I believe it to the bottom of my heart, that the greatest punishment God meets out to his people is to give them what they want, not what they need. The worst thing we as, as preachers and teachers can do is tell the body of Christ what it wants to hear. I don't need somebody to tell me what I want. I need somebody to tell me what I need. So after all of this, they get kings, right? Three of them, essentially. Saul, David, Solomon, and it's like a bell curve. There's this rise in the kingdom, and all these great things happen, and then it just falls apart. And pretty soon they're down. After Solomon, there's a, essentially a military civil war that takes place. Ten kingdoms form Israel up north, two, two tribes down south, which are Judah, and the house divided just doesn't cut it. 722 B.C., Israel falls to the Assyrians. Northern kingdom ceases to exist. After that, in 586, Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar invades and conquers Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 36 tells us that Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The walls torn down and the temple of God flattened. And the people who weren't killed in the assault were mostly taken off to Babylon in captivity. And that wasn't pretty either. So why tell you all this story? Because it's important. 
that we know it. Jeremiah had tried to warn them. The prophets had over and over again told them, this is coming. Finally, it got so bad that God in Jeremiah 6 tells the Babylonians how to attack Jerusalem victoriously. He tells them how to beat his people. Because God is more concerned about the purity of his people than he is his own reputation. You ever think about that? I think that's amazing. Jeremiah tried to tell them that the choice was before them, but they said, we'll not listen. Well, here's where the story gets really pretty cool. In God's providence, the Medes and the Persians attack Babylon and defeat the Babylonians, and a king named Cyrus comes. And just like that, Cyrus changes directions and says, you, got, you Jews who want to go home, go home. After the 70 years that Jeremiah had predicted, now they can go home. Imagine just being a captive and one day the king's saying, hey, you're free to go. And they start their return. But another thing you have to think about in this whole story is we see it in, in, you know, we see it in a moment. This is 70 years later. Very few of the people that are going to go back to Jerusalem have ever been to Jerusalem. Most of them have never seen They never saw the temple. They never saw the walls of the city. So why in the world would they go back to a place they have never been before, to a place they've never seen? Why would they do that? Because it was home. It was home. It's where in in Jewish thought, in their religious thought, it's where God lived. It lived in their hearts and their minds and memories and the stories passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. That is why it's so important that we build strong families and pass our stories down generation to generation to generation to generation. And I love the second part of verse 1. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, he's bringing them back or he's brought them back. We were like men who dreamed. Have you ever wanted something or anticipated something so much that when it finally happens and you wait and wait and wait for it, it finally happens and you go, wow, pinch me. It's like a dream. It's like the first time Judy said to me, you're right. 
Just a thought. There are things that are so good that they seem unreal or like they will never happen. And when they do, it's, we're like these We're like men who, who dreamed. Well, we move on. Our second word is song. Song. It says, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. There are three things here that are very important. And, and I, as we were singing, I, I got, it just came into my mind about this, these verses, how much... Um, Y'all know that Judy and I live in Jonathan and Aaron's basement. That's why you never see us. They don't let us out. They lock the doors and, and keep us because they don't want people to see us. And, but the kids are downstairs a lot. And, and it's fun because they'll just go around singing. That's the great thing about kids. They'll just break out into song. Now, I am concerned because one day at lunch, one of them broke out into, um, he was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater, but that's a whole different thing. But usually it's these great little songs they learned in church. They'll come home and sing all the songs they sang in Ignite. They'll just break out into song. Why don't we do that? I'll do it in the car when I'm by myself. I do it around the church all day when I'm here. They were so filled with joy that they had to break out into song. See, there's three things. The first is emotion. Our, our mouths were filled with laughter. They couldn't contain themselves. The emotion. There were no words to express how they felt as they approached the holy city. But there's also witness. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. You know, when, God, when we allow God, when we let God use us to do great things for him, guess who sees it? The world out there. The world out there. There is witness to our work. And finally, there is praise. There is praise. Because then it turns around, and it's interesting in the second half of verse 2 and then verse 3, how the, the narrative changes from, then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The world outside is looking in and seeing that God has done great things. And now they turn around and say, and the Lord has done great things for us. There's this voice of praise lifted as they recognize, understand and acknowledge that God has done great things for them. Do, you, do we do that? I know, we, we sing the songs on Sunday morning, but how often through the week do we really stop and acknowledge the great things that God is doing in our lives? I'll be the first to admit it's easy to forget about God. Stop thinking of life as ordinary. It's not. 
Life with Jesus is extraordinary. However you shake it. It's a miracle. It's, it's a blessing. Every single day of our life on this planet is a blessing. And it's a bonus. Two summers in a row, as many of you know, I had the chance to go to France and, and walk the beaches of, of one of the uh, pinnacle battles of World War II, um, June 6, 1944, and stand on a beach and look out at this beach and understand that there were hundreds of young men, 18, 19, 20 years old, who died on that beach. And here I am, 71. Why should I not praise God for the length of my life? What have I done to deserve this? What have any of us done to deserve what we have? We praise God. There is song. Third thing is prayer. Just one verse. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. That's a little, the, the translations are a little deceiving here. This is really crucial. What the psalmist is praying for is a complete restoration. They're coming back. But the psalmist knows that mm, there's still a lot of rebellion in our hearts. There's still a lot of repentance that needs to take place. There's still a lot of work for God to do in our hearts. Partial repentance, we talked about repentance last week, but partial repentance doesn't cut it. Remember why the Jews were in Babylon in the first place? For their rebellion, for their disobedience. And they're coming back and those seeds are still there. Think about our own lives, how often... Do we repent? Sort of. How often do we return to God? Sort of. Just well enough to get by. I've done enough pastoral counseling over the years that I've seen many times. For example, a couple will come in for marriage counseling and you work and work and work with them and they get just to a point where they're past the crisis. They say, okay, we're fine. But they haven't fixed the problem. They haven't fixed the problem. It, it's like, uh, the nearest thing I can say is it's like taking a couple of aspirin when you've got a cancerous tumor that's hurting you and saying, okay, the pain's gone away, I'm, I'm good now. Well, you may have taken care of the pain for the moment, but you haven't solved the problem. The psalmist recognized that there was work to be done in the hearts of the people. Have they learned their lesson? Have we learned our lessons? And finally, promise. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves 
with him. The fall of Judah and Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity produced many tears. We forget about how many people died. How many people died in the assault on Jerusalem? How many people died in captivity? And in Psalm 137, I, I love Psalm 137. It's, it's uh, one of the captive psalms. And, and the psalmist says, how can we sing songs of joy while in a foreign land? How can we sit here by the rivers of Babylon being mocked and, and ridiculed? And how can we sing songs of joy when we're in a foreign land? Does that sound familiar? We are in a foreign land, people. We are exactly what Peter wrote about, that we are aliens and strangers here. We don't fit into the world narrative anymore. And shame on us if we try. And if we ever do try to fit the world narrative, may God close this church down. Many, many tears. Failure, falling, our sin and stupidity. All these things do produce tears. But God's promise is this. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. When our repentance comes out of the depths of our heart and it produces tears... Then God is there with open arms. Amen. Thank you. And it is the story of the prodigal son. He had, to, he had to walk away, and he had to find himself wallowing in a pig pen and come to the point where he said, you know what, I'm going to go back to my dad. I don't care where he, what he has me do. I just need to go home. Our sins, they are many, right? But what? His mercy is more. God is not finished, people. Okay? Understand this. Uh, I'm reading a marvelous book by Erwin Lutzer. I've been reading it for three years. That's typical. But he talks about the Babylonian experience and how we are in a Babylonian experience. And he says so many of us live and work and walk and worship like God has been defeated. Like COVID has won. Guess what? COVID can't beat God. No way. And, and government restrictions, no matter how, what they become, they can't defeat the church that Jesus said the gates of hell cannot prevail against. We're only defeated if we allow ourselves to be defeated. It ain't over unless we think it's over. Right?
Lutzer says this in his book, he who has been given all authority in heaven and earth has made available to us all that we need, not merely to survive, but to thrive in this hour of growing darkness. Come on, people. Let's not just hang on. Let's not just hang on for dear life. Let's thrive in this world of growing, growing darkness. Jesus said in Luke 12, 35, be dressed and ready and keep your lamps lit. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. It ain't over. It ain't over. Let me close with this story. A friend of mine used to tell it all the time, and I've told it many times, but, but I love it because it's, it's so perfect for this. It's about a young boy who goes into an art gallery. And as he goes into the art gallery, he sees this famous painting of, a, it's a chess game. And on one side of the chessboard sits the devil. And he is sneering. This, this wonderfully happy sneer. And on the other side sits a young man with his head in his hands. Obviously beaten, obviously defeated. And this young boy stands in front of this painting. And this boy knows something about chess. And he studies it. He studies it. And he studies it, minute after minute, finally hour upon hour, till finally, right in the middle of this quiet art gallery, he shouts out, it's a lie! It's a lie! You see, at the bottom of the painting, it said checkmate. Which, if you know anything about chess, which I don't, means the game's over. And he yells out, it's a lie. It's a lie. The king has another move. And that is always the way it is for us people. Yeah, it may look dark at times. We may feel like we are at the very end of the road. The king has another move. What's the worst thing that can happen to you as a follower of Jesus Christ? The final move be from here to there. Is that a bad thing? Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. He says, I'm torn between the two in Philippians. He writes, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more important for me to stay here with you. So, The king has another move, people. Oh, come on. Give me an amen. amen. Lord, thank you. You are a gracious and mighty and awesome God who does indeed remind us daily as we look to be reminded, I guess, as we open our eyes, we see how 
faithful you have been in our lives. How amazing you have poured out your blessings upon us, even though we have no, no reason, no thought of, of deserving such blessings. Father, I prayed it earlier and I pray it again. Startle us. Jolt us. Awaken us. Awaken your church. Don't let us feel defeated. Take away that tendency that we have to, to see a world bearing down on us and, and getting discouraged and doubtful. When in fact you said the gates of hell shall not overcome, shall not prevail against your church. But we have to be faithful as a church. Father, for those in this room this morning who simply need to take a deep breath, And renew the, the pledge that they made to you when they first gave their life to you. Let them in this moment do that. For all of us. And Father, for anyone in this room now that has never, by faith... That's what we sang earlier, have thrown up the white flag and surrendered their life to you. Lord, there's no magic words or no magic prescription. It's just saying yes. Understanding our sinfulness and our, our lostness our complete inability to save ourselves, and knowing that there is only one who can do that. May that moment be now. And Father, may your grace and mercy cover us as we recognize the magnificent truth that our sins truly are many, but your mercy is, is so much more. You're a great and awesome God, and we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.